Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. We burned the toupee. There are not many rest-like awards. Can we please talk about Alex Rocco? You got blonde bookends. My little corkola. She's a lip gloss puffball of hope. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode eight, and the winer is. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Jesse. We're back. We're back. We're making our way through season two. We're kind of we're kind of trucking. We really are. I'm liking it. Yeah. Liking it. And uh, this episode was written by Catherine Baker, an, again, freelance. The second mm-hmm. time that she has written an episode this season, not a lot of our uh, regular writer's room people writing episodes for the first half of season two. I'm surprised by this. I was going to say, our staff writers have been... Have been not as prevalent. I mean, obviously, as we've talked about, they're very, very much present in the writer's room. But yeah, kind of, I know. It's kind of cool to see in a second season that we're seeing so many freelance writers getting a shot. Yeah, it, it, it gives me pause. But then I have to go, well, it's not like they're not extensively rewritten in the writer's room. This is a team effort. Every episode is a team effort. But it is something that gives me pause. I'm like, huh, I wonder mm-hmm. what that was about. I mean, maybe just these, the freelance writers came in swinging and the, the staff was like, cool, get it. And it's funny, I would say that most of these episodes in the first half of season two aren't necessarily some of my favorites. I do think they're funny, but they're not the ones that I think of. I think of sort of the second half of season two, but also because the brother Silverberg is so strong. Yes. And so just like right out of the park. And then in comparison, but it's not like they're bad episodes, but maybe in comparison, it doesn't seem as... Like it is the same level as that episode? Sure, I can see. I mean, you come out swinging and there is something to, I I think, p- patterns within seasons that, mm-hmm. you know, especially nowadays when we get to like every show has a cliffhanger at the end kind of concept. Yeah. But there is something about like starting strong and then a lot of foundational episodes that um, are that are character building and could be setting up for later when everything ramps toward the end of a season. So I could see that as well. I think a, these are a lot of very specifically character driven episodes that are I would say, well, I don't know, because we've had some really interesting plots as well. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't want to say that they're bad. I think they're good. Oh, they're not. They're not. But I, there is something to that they're, I don't know what I'm saying. That I, I appreciate the thought experiment. I have to think about that some more. Yeah, I mean, we can always come back to it, too. And mm-hmm. which we'll talk about soon is, which I've mentioned on the show, is I didn't start watching the series till episode nine. So... I'm just not as familiar with these episodes, even though I watch them in syndication. So maybe it's just Mm -hmm. uh, a memory thing. I didn't watch these as much. Probably. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, This was directed by Barnett Kelman. You may have heard of him. A couple times. A couple times. And it aired November 13th, 1989. Now, November 13th is actually quite famous in television history. Jesse, do you know why? Um, odd Couple Day? It is Odd Couple Day. Yes. If anyone doesn't know, <laughs> the uh, the opening to the song in The Odd Couple says that uh, Felix Unger was kicked out of his house by his wife. Or I guess, oh, I forget the wording. I think it was asked not to return something yes. pretty funny like that <laughs> on November 13th. Uh, but in my household, the reason I know this a lot, not just because uh, it's one of my dad's favorite shows, but it's my grandfather's birthday. Oh, and I've also mentioned on the show that November 14th is my dad's birthday. 
I lived with a lot of Scorpios growing up, and it was quite yes. traumatic. Um, my brother is the 10th, so it's a very busy week for my family. Oh, goodness. I thought my my dad and sister were close with, like, I think, 3rd and 17th, but no. Yeah, no, yeah, it's like tense. Milberger week. <laughs> <laughs> now, this episode is uh, one of Faith Ford's Emmy submissions for Best Supporting Actress. She was nominated. And I think we've sort of talked about on the show before that the uh, actors and their representation, they submit a certain number of episodes Mm -hmm. for it's funny, though, because I always had thought that for best actor, you submitted two or a full hour. So if you were an hour, it was one episode, a half half hour show would be two episodes and four Mm -hmm. if you were supporting or let's say up to four. But a lot of the Mm -hmm. things I've seen, it looks like only one episode was submitted for best actor, which is that's that's pretty hard to find the one episode that you feel shows you off the best for an entire season. Unless you had that episode that was just such a gauntlet. Yeah. You know, like there, there are those episodes where like, oh, this was Corky's episode or this was Murphy. Like there, there are yeah. those ones that happen. So I can see that, that concept. It depends on how much episodes focus on plot versus your character in the plot. Yeah. And uh, she lost that year to B.B. Newworth in Cheers. B.B. And funny enough, Charles Kimbrough also unfortunately lost Best Supporting Actor that year to Alex Rocco <laughs> for playing the same character he plays in this episode but not for Murphy Brown. Yep. <laughs> and we will get more onto that later. <laughs> love Alex Rocco. Oh, we, I love Yes, we will Alex discuss Rocco. him later. Yes. I do I do think it's fun little little twist of fate that this episode includes so many um, connections to award winning. Yes. When it's considering the topic that we're about to go into. Exactly, which is why I thought it was so relevant. This is definitely mm-hmm. their, you know, spoof or parody of award season. Oh, as we'll see in the last moment. <laughs> Well, it's sort of a great, you know, we've talked about the show being so meta, right? To do this episode mm-hmm. in the second season after they've already won all these awards. Mm-hmm. To then make fun of it is, is great. Uh, so the the opening song of this episode is My World is Empty Without You by the Supremes. And like many Supreme songs, it was backed up by the Funk Brothers and written by Holland Dozier Holland. Um, according to Lamont Dozier, this song is based on what success cost him in his personal life, which I think is a very... Um, interesting topic, yeah. especially for uh, for a band like the Supremes to cover. The quote is that when you have no one to share your good fortune with, it can be a very grim and lonely time. A lot of sacrifice for this fame and fortune was made, including losing one of the loves of my life. Ugh. Which is, ugh. Um, interestingly enough, it's one of the few songs they wrote for the Supremes that did not reach number one. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, I know the song really well. I was, I think I kind of assumed that any song by them that I know was number one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is it is a very sad song, it whether is. you knew what it was about or not. Yeah, it's it's a beautifully written song. It came out in December of 1965. It reached number five on the U.S. pop charts for two weeks in 66, and it was number 10 on the R&B charts. Now, at this time, the Supremes were Diana Ross, Mary Wilson, and Florence Ballard. But this was the time period where Ross was beginning to become the lead singer, and uh, Florence Ballard did not like this. She had a particular issue with Barry Gordy, and of course... Gordy was in love with Diana Ross. They would go on to have an affair and a child while he was married. So Ballard just didn't show up to record the song and was replaced by Marlene Barrow, who was um, uh, known for backing the Four Tops. And this was, I think, another year Ballard was in the Supremes before she was finally replaced by Cindy Birdsong. So this is a very specific slice of time for the Supremes, this song. Yeah, God, everything comes with a little bit of drama, doesn't it? 
Oh, it makes me, I remember there, there have been so many, you know, made for TV movies, but I specifically remember this particular story in what must have been like a 1990s Lifetime movie about the Supremes or like an ABC family movie or something. I remember this moment. Now, something interesting that I read that I thought of when we started doing this episode was, I don't know if anyone has read about Camille Shire. She is a currently Miss Virginia, but she is also a biochemist. And she... She is the future. She is the future. <laughs> So on June 22nd, she was crowned Miss Virginia, but her talent portion was a chemistry experiment, which is why she was getting a lot of attention, which is very cool. Women in STEM. Women yes. in STEM. Do it. She's pursuing a, a doctor of pharmacy uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And considering that, you know, the Miss America pageant is uh, very much from those who are pro it, call it a scholarship competition. Mm -hmm. So I... I was very impressed by this. And I think it's something that Corky would be very excited about. Yes, I think uh, Corky would be covering this and getting lots of personal interviews. And then I, I just it, it warms my heart. I'm so glad that that is recognized as a talent. That is so cool. Yes, that was why it really took my mm -hmm. attention. And I think why, you know, it sort of ran in the press as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So shall we start the episode? Let's dive on in. All right. So the first opening, I should say, the beginning, the opening is something we have not seen very much where it's just... Yeah, it's quick. <laughs> it is It is very quick, but it's not sort of a couple different shots of clips or a little sort of preamble. It's just this sort of odd filming of what looks like a very phallic symbol at the beginning yeah. And is actually an award that glimmers in the light. It is the Humboldt. Aren't so many of them phallic? <laughs> yes, yes, they are. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Emmy is a woman, and she does have the wings and the ball. I mean, literally, they're usually, they're, I mean, not usually. A lot of them are, you know, female forms or that kind of thing. But, like, they're tall. People like to stroke them. They're symbols of power. A lot of them I, I come across quite phallic. Oscar himself is quite phallic. <laughs> there are not many uh, breast-like awards. I mean, speaking of just things in general, I, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, which is now streaming everyone, is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yes. And all I think about is Amy Adams stroking the Washington Monument on her head. You know, we, it's, it's a common, it's a common form. <laughs> and, uh... We have not had the Humboldt mentioned. So this is our first Humboldt episode, which mm -hmm. obviously is standing in for most likely the Emmy, I would think, right? Well, she holds up an Emmy at the end. Yes, but but I'm talking about it's the, I'm not saying the Emmy doesn't exist. I mean, sort of standing in for parroting the, the Primetime well, Emmy Awards, right? Wouldn't you think? Well, isn't there specifically a Broadcast Journalism Award, though? I would think that it seems to be a specifically journalism award. That's true. I guess I was thinking of uh, news Emmys, but you have a good point. I, I think for me, even though I know it's a nod to the real world, mm -hmm. the 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 picking up of the Emmy and the comparison of it to the Emmy at the very end of the episode implies that the Emmys are a real thing. <laughs> oh no, yeah, I'm not saying that they're not. I'm saying it's not saying that it's replacing it in the world of the show because obviously in the pilot she has an Emmy. Yeah, I just meant in the sense of that. They all have won Emmys and to then make fun of the Emmys, whereas using this fake award. Oh, this is definitely making yeah. fun of it. I just, yeah. I felt like this was a specific journalism award. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. Within that world, yes, mm -hmm. it absolutely is. But it, I was thinking of sort of an equivalent in the real world. But the Emmy definitely exists in this world. Because I was thinking of the Peabody, but the Peabody is for all forms of entertainment. 
It's more sort of a humanitarian award, right? Yeah, Peabody's a humanitarian. Yeah. Because like Battlestar Galactica won a Peabody. And so did Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown won a Peabody. But then so did uh, The Daily Show. Not that I'm saying The Daily Show is journalism. I'm just saying that it's wide ranging. I would love to claim that Battlestar Galactica is journalism, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so they are definitely not just journalism. Uh, they're representation and conversation. I mean, eventually we're going to get to the uh, Robert F. Kennedy Award in journalism, which is a real mm-hmm. award, which mm-hmm. Murphy will get. So there is definitely that sort of, you know, balance of real and fake. I reckon, yes, it's a nod to that. Uh, but I just love when we have sort of our things that are within our world. You know, if you mention mm-hmm. the Humboldt and you're a Murphy Brown fan or Sardellas, you know that it's within this world. Mm-hmm. And then we go right into the bullpen. Jim is laughing at his own <laughs> jokes in a quite delightful way. Um, he cracks himself up. Uh, it seems that he's uh, been asked to host the Humboldt, so he's writing off a few jokes. Uh, Murphy bemuses, you know, oh, aren't the nominations coming out soon? And Frank knows for sure that they are today. This is something that Frank obviously is going to be talking about in therapy. Uh, he woke up this morning with the feeling of an impending doom. I, I get you, Frank. Because he always loses. This Apparently, he's been nominated nine times. Mm-hmm. So the co- first couple of years, I guess it took a while for FYI to get noticed. But nine times and nine times he has lost. Well, did it take FYI a long time to be noticed or Frank a long time to be noticed? Good point. That's right. It does, it does seem very Frank to take a while. But nine times in a row is still pretty damn good. No, it's great. I just yeah. think that, um, yeah. Frank, no, I think you're yeah. right. Yeah, he's got his little his little luchy thing. Corky thinks that it's just a thrill to be nominated. Um, she looks quite adorable. She's a lip gloss puffball of hope. She really is, Corky, Corkala, <laughs> Corkala. <laughs> She's just quite adorable in this whole opening scene. I have to say. Then she becomes a mm-hmm. uh, kind of Murphy. Yes, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. We'll get on to that. Um, so the elevator dings, and Miles comes off literally with an envelope. With a seal. Yes, with, a, with a little, yep, the little foil seal on the back. It's great. Yeah, I wrote, oh, emails ruined us. It's true. Yeah, and he goes, may I have the envelope, please? Or he says envelope, excuse me, because I say envelope. It's envelope. Yes, I looked it up. I apparently am wrong because <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, I didn't know. I just thought I was being, a. I, I come from a family of, you know, pretentious jerks who say envelope <laughs> and, and either and neither and all these things that I have to well, have trained out of me when I play certain characters. <laughs> I wasn't going to talk about it, but do you want to know why it is actually envelope? Yes, please. Because I love it, trivia. Because it comes from the French. Oh, of course it does. So when we say envelope, it's because we're pronouncing it incorrectly as Americans. Well, yeah. And that's why, pronounce it correctly, people. Yeah. So I was, it's why it's, you know, unroot and not en route. Mm, good point. So anyway, Miles says envelope and he is correct and I'm wrong. Um, good job, Miles. Yes. Frank pretty much cries into Murphy's side, which is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fra- Frank goes from the depths of despair to like his happy mischief place in this episode. <laughs> I know. He really, it's. I love how he kind of, you know, brings it back. and He makes lemonade, people. He really, really does. And he's very good at it. Not only is the envelope sealed, it was delivered by bonded messenger. <laughs> it's just amazing how very quickly this will become just something that gets faxed to them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, so, oh, so Miles goes through all of the nominations like a jerk. Yeah. Sports, who cares? I'm like, Miles, wow. Yeah, uh, Miles, that... Miles. <laughs> Dude. So finally he gets to our category, which is Outstanding Broadcast News Reporting. We have Dan Rather, Student Uprising in Tenement Square. Oh, yeah. Miles goes, big surprise. Mike Wallace, sad day for the FBI. 
Miles aside is what? Someone lost the keys to the Plymouth? Oh, wait, can we just for a moment, before we get to our heroes, yes, talk about the fact that one of Frank's laments is the fact that he can't bring a date because he can't trust that if he wins, then it's a celebration. And if you lose, it's a pity thing. <laughs> Frank. <laughs> oh, buddy. He can't trust why they want him in bed. No. Well, it and honestly, it makes sense because uh, Frank does not think that he's lovable most I know. of the time. It's, it's sad. Poor, poor dude. His mom really messed him up. Yeah. Frank. Yeah. Anyway, please continue. Oh, sure. Also, I should mention, I have not seen it, but there is a documentary coming out on Mike Wallace, which we all should probably see, uh, considering particularly that that's how Murphy Brown was described as Mike Wallace in a dress. So you'll learn more about that. Ooh, let's do our homework. Yes, we will. Miles gets to our our heroes and goes, "Uh uh-oh. There are a lot of people who go, "Uh uh-oh, in this episode, I noticed. I was like, Mm -hmm. very specific, considering there is an episode called that later on. Uh, Murphy Brown for Jesse Jackson, the man behind the rainbow. Oh, man. These titles are fantastic. Uh, Murphy looks humbled and sort of relieved. Uh, it's for, she, she's very good acting in this episode for Candace Bergen. A lot of asides and looks, sort of her traditional, uh, just mm-hmm. turning her head and it being hilariously funny. Uh, everyone stands and applauds. They congratulate her. Frank kisses her on the cheek. And then Miles stops and goes, uh-oh, again, it's Frank Fontana, the Exxon Valdez journey to disaster. Oh, hey, what did we just talk about last episode? The Exxon Valdez oil spill? We did. Go back and listen to that episode, guys. We're so timely. Ding, 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 it is. Save the sea otters. (laughs) (laughs) Frank looks relieved, but also upset at the same time. We get the same fanfare for Frank. Um, He says it's another chance to be humiliated at a formal dinner. I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Only Frank could say, I'm so happy. And it sounds so sad. Yeah. Uh, Jim and Corky try to console him, but, you know, Frank can't take another year. He has to wear a tux. Like Jesse said, he's going to have a date. It might be a pity thing <laughs> if he loses. Uh, yeah. So Frank, Frank still needs some therapy. And then everyone's uh, taking their attention because that's it. There's no one else among them who could possibly be nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles is obviously trying to still get their attention. Murphy's going to take everyone out, you know, for lunch, her treat. She feels, you know, so high on herself. It's all going to be okay. Uh, and I forgot to mention, too, that Frank's date will be Murphy. Murphy says, oh, come on. I'll be your date. It'll be fine. You know, we'll just go together. Because she wants him to be there for his, mm-hmm. his, his exciting time, which he will not enjoy. The thing that Miles is trying to get everyone's attention to is Corky Sherwood, a woman's touch at West Point. Yes, Corky Sherwood, in her first year at FYI, has, has been nominated for a Humboldt. Everyone is shocked. It's kind of an interesting uh, topic, actually, a woman's touch at West Point. I want to know what that story was. I agree. To talk I've ab- taught students at West Point at <gasps> Shakespeare. Cool. And I've worked with the female students, and I'm really fascinated to know what a woman's touch at West Point was. Well, let's see. I mean, I would guess, obviously we don't know, let's see what you would guess, is that it was about women being admitted into West Point and well, exactly. what they were going and- through, which is very timely and very feminist. And I, you know, I wonder, because it's quirky, um, if they gave it more of a fluff spin and she like looked at their rooms to see how they could decorate it and make them more feminine. However, the fact that they were highlighting women at West Point is very cool. It is very cool. I love that they picked this because you you go, just like you said, Jesse, I believe that quirky would do this, but also I believe that it would be nominated. Mm-hmm. Quirky explodes, I wrote like a gin fizz. <laughs> 
she just is so excited. Like she won Miss America. That's something I do appreciate is that the way that she responds from winning and hearing that she's nominated is so specifically the way that she would respond when she won the crown. It's the moment that they that they mock in Miss Congeniality with the like the fanning oh, the hands yes, the face yes. and the high pitched and that I wish I could recreate the high pitch that happens later in this episode when she's mm-hmm. my goodness that woman has amazing pipes. She does. Uh, but but also to her credit like something that is often like in Miss Congeniality that is mocked about the pageant circuit is whether like how genuine these reactions are Mm -hmm. and the thing we love about Corky is this is so authentic she is so excited and what she proceeds to say which I'll of course let you say but what she proceeds to say is incredibly self-aware and appreciative yeah I love the way that that Faith she just like crosses her arms and hits her chest and she's so excited oh my god I can't believe it like I can't Mm -hmm. even go as high as she can she is so happy she is a huge sunshine of joy. Clearly to her, it is an honor to just be nominated. Like she yeah. clearly, it, it, that is the true like reminder to both Frank and Murphy about the first time that happened. Like it is a big deal and it's and really she, cool. She's also very honest. You know, she was hoping that she'd be nominated, but she was worried that her looks would be a burden. She would have to shoulder for the rest of her professional life. Which legit is what they've all been mocking her for. Yeah. Again, we've said Corky is not dumb. She just doesn't have experience and she's learning. She's just, you know, at a, 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 she's just behind everybody. And and it has to do with her age. And and she's self-aware. She's self-aware. And it's something that I, I think is really commendable. And then she's very, very honest. She knows that she's supposed to say that she doesn't really want to win. And she doesn't want Murphy to lose or either, or Frank to lose but she really wants to win. And she says that she doesn't believe that she'll be able to sleep for two weeks. She can't work today. <laughs> and she's going to go call her mom. Which is so sweet. I just, so, I just am so endeared. It's lovely. Cut two. Oh, it's awards night. What I love about a, a, sh- a sitcom is that you know, if you jump straight to the awards banquet, that the entire show is ab- about what goes wrong at the awards banquet. <laughs> so... We get the payoff of watching Jim giggle to himself earlier about how he just cracks himself up as we swoop into Jim emceeing the the banquet saying, I won't say this tuxedo is old, but I found a ticket stub in the pocket for the Ford's theater production of Our American Cousin, which for anyone who didn't perk up at the Ford theater comment, that is the very popular U.S. play that was playing when President Abraham Lincoln was attending the Ford's theater in Washington, D.C. and was assassinated by actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth on April 14th, 1865. <laughs> I don't know the way you said it. I, I was I thought of Back to the Future. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I'm okay with that. 1985? 1885? Uh, I know it's not the same year. Anyway. So yes, that is the um, the joke that uh, Jim is making. Yeah, Lincoln joke. Great go ahead, Jim. Good old yeah. Lincoln joke, which, you know, it, that's a nice obscure pull, I have to say. For, like, I love, you know the writers had such a good time coming up with just some of, like, the worst award show jokes they could make that Jim thinks is hysterical. That's a very obscure pull. No, it's good. Them. You know, it's a good pull. I this like it. This is our kind of humor. We would enjoy exactly. something that was, we would be the ones who were laughing hilariously in the back and it was also, dead silence. Also, he's just so proud of himself. Yeah. So they, after he says that, they cut to, to the banquet and you get to the, the hero table and uh, Miles goes, oh God, he's telling another story and turns to the table. So while they let Jim drone on at the microphone, we get to see what's happening at our, our circular table. And Frank is currently spiraling and he wonders if he just craves humiliation by being there. 
Um, he can tell that everyone is looking at him and they think he's a loser and a masochist and an idiot for showing up for nine years of this. Murphy offers to slap him and he says he'll probably like it. I think he would, actually. He really would. He needs yeah. he needs a slap. Can I add something, though? Yeah. He's not wearing his hair. I know. I'm so confused. I had to fast forward to double check that he had not maybe stopped wearing the hair on, on the show. And no. That's why I was so jarred, because then we cut to FYI later and the toupee's on. And I get any other thing. I'm fine with it. I know we've talked about it. And we're, you know, half kidding, because uh, it's not something the writers had thought about. Mm-hmm. But he's at an event for journalism and he's not wearing the hair i pose i pose a suggestion (laughs) yes please we have seen frank out at galas and events and he never wears the toupee Mm -hmm. now i would argue that this one seems weird because if you end up on camera accepting an award you'd want the toupee but is it because he so truly 100 believes it's not going to happen that he doesn't even try because that would be more embarrassing to try I love it. He's self-sabotaging himself. He's going, well, I'm not going to win anyway. He's like, I'm going to look more like an idiot if I put my hair on now, because then everyone's going to know, because all these people see him at events all the time without it. Yeah. Or, I mean, it seems like Frank just doesn't like the hair, and they make him wear it on the show. Maybe this is his act of defiance to not wear it in real life and be like, you know what? I shouldn't wear it. I feel like later season, Frank, that would be an act of defiance. I'm not sure Frank is strong enough through therapy yet to do that. (laughs) That's true, actually. You're right. I should take that back. (laughs) No, I love the empowerment. I just feel like we're not at that Frank yet. (laughs) Well, I I can't wait till he burns it. That's one of my favorite scenes. I know. He burns it. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Spoiler, guys. Spoiler. We burn the toupee. After that exchange ends, we cut to Jim with his... His punchline saying, so I said to the tailor, I know you rent to magicians, but I won't pay extra to have the rabbit cleaned. And they cut to the, and the whole audience just kind of looks down and like sips their coffee and just looks awkward, to which we get a true comedy cliche of Jim tapping the mic and asking if it's on, <laughs> which, again, well, of course, like Corky is so authentic. <laughs> It really it, is. It makes an old joke funny because Charlie Kimbrough is so authentic in that moment. There's, you know, again, truth in comedy and he's yeah. being very truthful. He he's, thinks his jokes are great. He's like, this is amazing. Why is no one? Uh, oh, all right. You obviously can't hear me. Exactly. And he, so we're on to the awards. Now, of course, I know this is a kind of a sitcom trope, but this is clearly like the big award of the ceremony. Because you've got mm-hmm. Dan Rather and you've got Mike yeah, Wallace. Yeah. Like, these are cl- this is clearly a big award. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, they start with it. It's not like, because I thought that maybe Jim was just, you know, like wearing down the audience throughout the night. We were about halfway through and we're, because yeah. you never do the big award at the top of the night because then everyone That's what moves. I thought. But, you know, we got to cut to the, we, but we said onto the awards. Now, perhaps onto the awards means to the rest of the awards. Oh, but my I first reaction, that. yeah, my first reaction was, are we starting with the, anyway, we cut to the table. So we have Corky, who is green sparkles and excitement. We have Frank, who is just depressed and resigned. And then we have Murphy in kind of a leopard print kind of thing going on, um, who is expectant but poised. And, you know, she's not even fully turned. This is very much like, oh, no, I, it, whatever happens, I'm fine. Oh, kind of over the shoulder thing of the person who knows they're going to win. Like it, the three of them as a shot is wonderful. And then Miles turns around to the table and says, okay, this is it. No matter who wins, I want you to remember one thing. Say my name. You only have to mention it once. That's all I ask. Okay, good luck. And he turns back around to Jim. This is one of my favorite things that happens at this event. We get the pictures that pop up behind Jim as he announces everyone. Oh, these now pictures. We, we don't see Mike Wallace's pick, but then we see Dan Rather's picture, which is clearly a real picture of Dan Rather in the field. Then we get the picture of Murphy in front of a, a blown up image of Jesse Jackson. <laughs> 
that's just a, a vision of red. Then we get uh, kind of a, a nice headshot of Frank, black and white, in front of the Exxon Valdez. And then we get Corky's glamour shot with wet hair that is in no way a shot she would have submitted, that the news station would have submitted. It's clearly just a modeling pose of Corky with wet hair. And to her credit, she looks very uncomfortable with it. But I love we have like action shot, action shot, cover story shot, cover story shot, wet hair glamour shot. It's Corky knows what people like about her at this moment. And I love the fact that they cut to her looking uncomfortable because she's my girl. And Corky wins. And everyone in the audience spits out their drinks. <laughs> Collective spit take is fantastic. It's awesome. Corky screams and jumps up. You thought she was excited before? You had no idea. She grabs Murphy and Frank and does this what almost becomes slapstick head knocking shake where the two of them almost collide and she takes off. Murphy, oh, Corky won. How good for her. <laughs> and then she does her acceptance speech. I'm not going to do any of the, the brilliant intonations that Faith Ford does. However, oh my gosh, I don't believe it. I won. My heart is beating a mild minute. I won. I have so many people to thank. My teachers, my friends, my parents, Edward and Bootsy Sherwood. But most of all, I have to thank the people of FYI. And she begins to list Frank Fontana, Jim Dial, John, Scott, Ernie, Carl, our crew, Earl in the mailroom, the man who brings us some donuts in the morning. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. We cut to Miles, who just drops his head. But mostly, I want to thank, Miles looks a little bit excited, Murphy Brown. Miles' face crumples farther. He just gives up. And then she starts to, and again to Corky, who is just so gracious and so earnest and digs a grave she doesn't know she's digging, mm -hmm. <laughs> proceeds to give a lovely tribute to Murphy, which is... The very first time I saw Murphy on TV, I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, eight or nine, Ugh. which we cut to the table. Frank perks up in this moment of depression, and Murphy just starts sneering. She says, and I said to myself, when I grow up, I want to be just like her. And now I am. And there's this great moment where she grins huge and the lights from a, from a camera flash. And she says, Murphy, you're an oak tree weathered by time yet still strong spreading your old branches to give shelter to the new life springing up at your roots i thank you murphy and i take the torch you pass me i want and she screams i want and at this point murphy has completely slumped down in her chair but again what it kind of reminds me of is drop dead gorgeous <laughs> oh, in which yes. denise richard says like uh Strong roots in a town like Mount Rose, a solid Christian trunk, and long leafy branches to, to shelter uh, handicapped children on a hot summer day. But there, it, it's such a pageant kind of speech and like this metaphor that she is giving that it, but it's so heartfelt and it's so earnest. And you, what I love is you see the way she sees Murphy. And what I love is a perspective because it's so insulting to Murphy, but it is the highest honor to Corky. Yeah. And I just, I find it's, it's so precious and so painful because the way Faith Ward does it takes about twice as long as I just read it. And it just milks this mo, it is genius, genius acting. I get why Faith submitted it just for that moment alone, yeah. let alone her, what's about to happen. Well, apparently this is inspired by something that Deborah Norville said on air to Jane Pauley. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. the the thing that gets me about about this is we find out Corky's parents names <laughs> Edward and Bootsy and Bootsy Bootsy Sherwood 
Of course her name is Corky. I know, I know, but the n- names like Bootsy and Bunny and um, it has this sort of, you know, um, uh, the rich people in, in Caddyshack yep. kind of, you know, waspy sort of vibe. In fact, it reminds me, Wendy Wasserstein has this great essay that when um, Hillary Clinton came out and said she found out that she actually had Jewish ancestry, I mean, very, very small. Mm-hmm. And a DNA test, then Wendy was like, well, then I'm Episcopalian. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm changing my name to Bunny. <laughs> well, and the funny thing, it's not just Waspy, because I think about the South and about her from the South. Oh, it's very Southern? Oh, the, see? Oh, yeah. I am such a Yankee. I take it back then. No, it's just, it's, what it is to me is an old money aristocratic yes. people of affluence from these different areas and I, like uh. the, these cutesy names that the women are either given at birth or adopt mm-hmm. and also I, I you know you have things like i have a friend whose nickname was betsy from elizabeth but she her grandmother was bootsy from elizabeth because there was oh, this you know like interesting it's it's there's so many different ways that women get these names but it's often yeah. in these kinds of uh communities around the country now, we cut to the bullpen, but there is an entire cut section here. Oh, yes. Cut from the original broadcast and majorly cut from the syndication. Mm-hmm. In the syndication one that, that everyone is used to, we have Corky coming off the elevator, everyone sitting at the conference table in the bullpen, not very happy. Now, what you've missed is that Corky is getting tons of flowers delivered, just a ridiculous amount of flowers, which she does mention later mm-hmm. in Murphy's office. Carl comes in and just wants Murphy to feel better because of her loss, which of course just is going to make her feel even worse. Mm-hmm. In fact, my favorite is here, as a personal sidebar, Murphy, when I heard of your loss last night, I wanted to take you and hold you in my arms <laughs> and tell you it's all right to cry. Oh, buddy. To which Murphy says, Picturing that replaces all thought of losing Carl. <laughs> and then he, he mouths, I love you. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> I know. There's also a great moment that happens in the scene where Jim and Frank enter from the Xerox hallway. I like that it's actually called the Xerox hallway. Yeah. We have that now. And Jim is lamenting to Frank and he says, I haven't seen an audience that cold since Noriega stepped out on the balcony and asked, how am I doing? And then it says, big laugh from the audience. And Jim goes, oh, sure. Where were you last night? And apparently this is a famous outtake because... <laughs> Charlie comes out and he doesn't say balcony and then just curses because he knows what he said wrong and then everyone laughs, laughs and it goes back in. It's like all of a sudden he's Jim and then he's Charlie. Charlie! He's the best. So again, we cut to uh, Corky finally arrives singing the Rocky theme song. She really knows how to rub it in. But, you know, she thinks that everyone's going to be happy for her because she would be happy for all of them if they won. Uh, which she says, of course, is that the humble, which she has with her, it belongs to everybody. It's this beautiful award and she puts it in the middle of the table. And just as she says, it belongs to all of us, Frank touches it and she goes, hands off, Frank. I just cleaned it. Murphy cannot take this anymore. Meeting Miles, meeting, meeting, meeting. She needs it to start. Miles starts with, uh, you know, letting her know that he knows that she wants to do a story on the Brady Bill, that it would be a seven day waiting period for firearms. And it's very important if it gets passed. Um, If anyone's not familiar with James Brady, he was shot when President Reagan was shot as well, only he was shot more severely in the head and ended up in a wheelchair. And during that time, because of him, things like the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act or the Brady Act or the Brady Bill was enacted, which is not happened yet in the timeline of the show. And so Murphy wants to do a story on it. And as Mm -hmm. I mentioned, it would help uh, give a seven day waiting period to people wanting to buy a firearm. 
And as something that we have, you know, referenced before, which we won't get into in this episode, but um, gun violence um, and um, access to to weapons is something that uh, this show deals with regularly um, for some very personal reasons. This is 1989. Again, just to remind people, eventually this act was not signed into law until 1993. So this was an ongoing process for it to Mm be uh, confirmed through Congress and then eventually signed by Bill Clinton. Miles thinks that it's a great idea. Murphy thinks it should be this top story. And Miles thinks that they should give it to Corky. And then he goes quickly to Frank. Of course, upsets Murphy. And then I love how Grant just goes... Murphy Frank is talking. Uh, you know, she's like, this is, this is very serious. <laughs> Trying to hide the fact that he is most likely terrified. Uh, Murphy has spent a lot of time. She, she has collected and done tons of research into this. To which Miles guesses that Murphy will now want him to go into her office now and look at it. To which she goes, that's right. And he says he thought that she'd want that. I thought about it all morning in the shower, during breakfast, on the drive over, when I stopped at the store to buy Tums. Oh, buddy. Yeah. And at this time, uh, he's being marched into Murphy's office like a lamb to slaughter. Uh, Once in the office, Murphy says that Milo has five seconds to tell her why he's giving her story to Corky. Or Murphy says, I'm getting out my rubber bands and my paper clips and straightening your teeth. Mile lays it out. Corky won this prestigious award. Uh, now that the spotlight's on her, the network wants to use the humble to hype this week's show. Murphy hates it. Miles knows, but it's one story. Just let her spread her wings. And all this humble stuff will be over soon. And life can get back to normal. Uh, by the way, behind Murphy, we can finally see the dartboard. Mm-hmm. The sign says, check out time 11 a.m. Uh, right at this point, of course, Murphy comes in. Uh, because if she's doing the top story, she needs to meet with Miles in her office. Of course, it's so small. And there's not a lot of room with all the flowers and the gifts. And then she shoves the humble into the door from behind her back. Uh, to which Corky then looks around and notices that her office is a lot smaller than Murphy's. Hmm. She and Miles really need to talk. To which she leaves and then Murphy slowly turns her head to Miles in one of Candace Bergen's great comic takes. Mm-hmm. So we cut to showtime at the FYI set. And um, everyone's seated at the at the desk, um, except for Jim, which we'll notice in a moment. The toupee is there on Frank, but uh, Corky is asking... <laughs> the toupee is quite present. Corky asks John if he's seen her agent because he's flying in for the show that night. Nope, uh, John has not seen him yet. Oh, interesting. We'll keep an eye out for that. Frank and his toupee turns to Corky and asks, so what'd you choose? The two door, the four door? Oh, you know what? I could see you in a convertible. And Corky is confused. He's like, oh, that that's how Murphy got her car. Now that you've won a humble... Oh, man. And right at this moment is when Jim has been walking by to go to his seat and he stops standing over them and you can see him just staring at Frank. And as Frank goes, oh, man, nobody's talked to you yet, have they? Jim rolls his eyes and keeps going. And you're like, oh, no. And Corky goes, no. And this is where we get um, the new Frank, the the lemonade Frank, I'm going to call him, where he goes, oops, oh, I feel terrible. I shouldn't have said anything. And he just kind of looks as Corky confusedly and concerned starts to kind of look away toward the cameras. That's when Frank with makes this mischief face and turns to look at Murphy. He's such the big brother. He's such a little jerk. I love it. He's having so much fun. Murphy announces to the room, she says her earpiece isn't working. She's going to need another one. No one seems to notice. And right then the agent arrives and it is 
the wonderful, much beloved from our generation and the generation before us, Alex Rocco. Alex Rocco. You see this his very large form, very tall man, very imposing man with the voice, that great, I just call it like the mobster raspy voice. Yes. And you hear him say, no deal, they included expenses or we walk. What are we running, a charity? And then he goes, oh, there she is, my little Corkola, and leans down to hug her at the desk. Um, can we please talk about Alex Rocco? I just love yes, him so Yes, can we please talk about Alex much. Rocco? If you don't know Alex Rocco or you watch this episode and you, you think that he is familiar, it is because he in is. the 80s, he was in <laughs> everything. I have sort of a special place in my heart for Alex because he was Joe's father on The Facts of Life. Mm-hmm. And that was where I first knew who he was. So then when I'd see him in everything, I realized subconsciously I would think of him from this really uh, warm feeling in my childhood, which was watching the later seasons of The Facts of Life mm-hmm. once they moved out. It's so funny how many sort of sections of The Facts of Life you have. Yes. <laughs> it really had a lot of uh, an evolution. Uh, much like with Murphy Brown, it was on for so long, you know, different generations sort of grew up watching the facts of life at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people would know him as Mo Green from The Godfather. Yeah, that's a that's a standout role. For me, I mean, like many of these amazing character actors from that time period, I know him from two guest starring roles on Murder, She Wrote, yes. where he was you know, generally playing a uh, working class man who probably has mob ties. <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that mm-hmm. because, yes, he tend to play. I mean, he's Jewish in The Godfather, which is so funny because he was like, oh, this is great. Uh, there's so many roles for me. Mm-hmm. And and he happens to play a Jewish character, yep. <laughs> which he c- occasionally did as well. But Italian, Italian mobster type mm-hmm. sort of. He's got that that New York kind of thing going on, which is interesting because he's apparently from Boston. Yeah, but I can see that. I mean, there's. Obviously, Bostonian men also understand a certain type of mafia. Well, he was in the mafia. Yep. <laughs> Didn't know this. Found this out. Totally fascinating. Just, just carries it with him. Exactly. So uh, he was born in Massachusetts, as we alluded to, Alessandro Frederico, hope I say this right, Petraconi Jr. Mm-hmm. In 1936, he was a mob associate and a member of the Winter Hill Gang in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. In fact, apparently, it may not be true, but apparently the Boston Irish Gang War of the 1960s was started because of an unwanted advance on his girlfriend. I mean, like yeah. you, you look at him and you totally see why if a, a young man like him grew up in that area, they would recruit him. Yeah, of course. He's very physically imposing and he's clearly actually, and he was, I mean, Rest, rest his soul. But he mm-hmm. clearly was actually a very like lovely, jovial man later in life. But I bet as a young kid in that kind of area, he like visually when he wants to, he looks very scary. <laughs> he's like, I think, yeah, he was like six feet. Yeah, yeah he's terrified. I see that. <laughs> so after being questioned along with a mob boss on a murder charge and then released, he left Boston. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. And he moved to California. We will assume under the guise of being an actor, uh, mm-hmm. he was a bartender, but he did change his name right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his first INDB credit is actually in 1965. So it sounds like he started working quite quickly. But he did have a very strong Boston accent, which people like Leonard Nimoy, who he studied with, mm-hmm. really, really encouraged him to get rid of, that it was really, really thick. Well, yeah, because it was definitely going to pigeonhole him into just 
henchman. Which is just funny to me because he's, to me, he has such a pronounced New York kind of a thing going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that was more desirable than the Boston accent, which is interesting. Well, I am thinking about the fact that um, one, I think the first episode of Murder, She Wrote that he's in is, I believe, the first episode with a recurring character played by Jerry Orbach, where oh. he is a detective from Boston and looking at poten- ah. this potential, uh, potential like construction worker henchman character um, as a possible murderer. So the a lot of the uh, murder she wrote episodes, the big city that a lot of people think is like, oh, she's in New York, is actually she's in Boston because oh, she's from of Maine. Course. So yeah. it makes sense that he played a rough and tumble guy from there. It reminds me a bit of Barry, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I wonder if if Alex was still alive and maybe he might, you know, is a meta thing, like have a guest star appearance on Barry. You know, that like, that rough past trying to trying to remake it with the, with the love of art. You may know him from That Thing You Do, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. He also, you know, it's funny, you go back and you go, why does he mean so much to me? Oh, he's in all this stuff. He was in a movie called Gotcha, which I used to watch as a kid, which I don't know why they haven't remade. He was in Cannibal Run 2, The A-Team, The Golden Girls, Rabbit Test, which is this odd movie that Joan Rivers mm-hmm. wrote and directed with Billy Crystal about the first pregnant man. He was uh, Roger Myers Jr. on The Simpsons. He was the voice of B. Arthur on Family Guy. I love it so much. <laughs> Um, but quickly, I want to just tell a story uh, because I want to redeem myself about Alex Rocco. So uh, when he passed away, I happened to be in a trivia team and there were a lot of questions about Alex in that round. Yeah. So we had uh, sometimes people would just sort of like, you know, come and hang out and be part of the team that weren't usually part of the team. And someone brought this gentleman. And the question was, his character, Mo Green, in The Godfather was in Godfather 1 or Godfather 2. And I was like, I know Alex Rocco's, I am to be like the back of my yep. hand. He was in The Godfather. This guy says, no, no, Godfather is my favorite series. I know The Godfather really well. Mm. He was in two. And I was like, well, no, I know Alex Rocco really, really well. And I'm telling you guys, he was in the first Godfather, gets shot in the eye. It that That's the one he's in. Mm-hmm. Great, we have our answers. I go to the back to use the bathroom during the break. Come back, we're going through the answers. And we get to the last question. I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, we're winning. Great. We got that right. And I look around. Everyone's really, really sort of down and sad. And I said, what are you talking about? We got that right. Oh, we we changed it when you went to the bathroom. Oh, people. It it felt to me like, because he really was pushing it, Mm -hmm. that this idea that, well, you're a woman and you don't know the Godfather. Like, I am a man who knows the Godfather really well. And he was wrong. Well, you know, because they're dude movies. They're dude movies, yeah, exactly. And I never said that I didn't know the Godfather very well. I just said, listen, I... I don't think you know Alex Rocco's resume the way that I do. Exactly. It's like, mm, let's let's talk about what kind of trivia is more important here. Yeah. So we lost. Lame. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, Alex, as we alluded to, did die July 18th in 2015 at the age of 79, mm-hmm. but uh, left a amazing career and an Emmy win, yeah. which we alluded to. So Al Floss is a character from another television series that was on CBS at the time called The Famous Teddy Z. This is a crossover episode mm-hmm. in a way to promote Teddy Z, which was getting a lot of uh, critical attention, but not the ratings. And, and as I said, it was one season, it got canceled. And he went on to win the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor 
for the famous Teddy Z playing Al Foss, beating Charles Kimbrough. Mm -hmm. So it was a one season of vehicle for John Cryer, sort of based on a real life story about a kid from the mailroom who Brando made his agent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you know, became sort of, you know, a successful guy. And Al Foss is the, you know, older agent at the, the firm, I guess, who's really taken aback by this. Wow, there's a character named Albert N. Aristotle and Abe in this series. That's a lot of A's. A lot of Al's. (laughs) And whatever happened on the famous Teddy Z, it's hard to find. Some of it's on YouTube, is now part of the Murphy Brown universe. Yes. Oh, Alex Rocco. He's he's wonderful. Yeah, he's great. Go watch all of his stuff, guys. It's great. Gotcha, particularly great movie. Yes. Well, and um, this episode includes uh, some of his uh, particular uh, imposing skills. Yes, it does. It, it, everything that you know him by uh, is he uses this in this series. So he's checking in with his little corkola and she says she's okay. They won't let her keep her award on the desk during the show because it blocks Frank. And he goes, that's so <laughs> petty. Which I, I love that he's kind of just like Corky's little girlfriend. Um, but also, as we find out, it's even worse that he doesn't care about that specifically because it's Frank. Miles walks up behind him and he says, excuse me, may I help you? Al turns around, hands him some cash to go get him some coffee and says the leaded kind, none of that decaf. Miles corrects him that he is Miles Silverberg, the executive producer, to which <laughs> Alex Rocco does the best. What I, co- I So he basically goes, no. And I wrote, he covers his face with a mitten hand gesture <laughs> and just goes, am I embarrassed? We've talked on the phone. Al Floss, great to meet you. Holds his hand out like he's about to shake Miles's hand, but actually is just taking the cash back as quickly as possible and darts away from him. And be- as he keeps talking, he kind of just starts talking to the gang at the desk, leaving Miles in the dust. He goes, children are running this business. Shakes Murphy Brown's hand. Al Floss, I'm a big fan. Shakes Jim's hand. Al Floss. Shakes Frank's hand. Al Floss. And Frank goes, I know you're my agent, too. And what I love is he just kind of looks at Frank and just backs away suspiciously. <laughs> it's, I think because Alex is so known for being imposing that sometimes mm-hmm. people forget how funny the man is. He's so funny. He, beca- and also what I love is somebody with that large of a stature being able to be that specific physically with his limbs and like do this weird mitten hand thing and then grab the cash and take off. And he's just kind of like knees are bent and he's just being such a weird little little imp creature. I love him. So he steps back and he goes back toward where uh, Murphy often does the one-on-one interviews, but he's out of, you know, camera shot for the desk. And they clearly everyone's prepping to start rolling. And then Miles is in the center. He's starting to call some things. And then um, Al Floss calls him over. And he's like, you know, who am I to be telling you how to run your business? But I mean, look at it. You've got blondies on both ends. They're bookends. And he's like, that's the Oh, sorry. Um, that line is the one thing that I always think of from this episode. You got blonde bookends. You got blonde bookends. And it's, I mean, it is true. He just starts, you know, giving some suggestions, like, you know, how easy it would be to just, you know, move Frank over to Corky's seat, and then uh, maybe Murphy into into what was Frank's seat, and then, and then Corky can just go over to where Murphy was sitting, clearly all ending up so that Corky's in the hero seat next to Jim. And Miles, you know, takes it patiently and says, you know, unfortunately, we're two minutes to air and we just don't have time to change, which is fair because they orchestrate all the camera shots specifically to where people are sitting. And Miles, trying to be a host without insulting the agent, says, have you ever watched a taping from the booth? It's fascinating. And he begins to start giving directions to which Al goes, hey, I'm I'm backing up. I'm out of your way. I see where you I see how you got where you are. And he just kind of sweetly holds Miles's chin like a little tyke. He goes, you're a smart kid. 
So you know your time here is limited. Believe me, I know. One day you're talking to London on your car phone, and then the next day you're refilling a salad bar at Denny's. It could happen like that, snap. Why? Because your star isn't happy. The, the way that he goes from like, whoa, whoa, you're the boss, kid. Yeah, you're so cute, into threat is amazing. Mm-hmm. Because it is that very subtle, like, I'm not saying I'm threatening you. I'm just saying the world's a scary place and, you know, your star isn't happy. And then right at that moment, Corky, in what is very clearly just a, like, kind of a childish, whiny moment to herself, just happens to look at her glass and whines that there's no ice in her water. To which Miles screams, ice for Miss Sherwood. John then screams, ice for Miss Sherwood. Carl then screams, ice for Miss Sherwood. And it turns into, like, a yodel, like, bouncing off the Alps. (laughs) <laughs> Ice for Miss Sherwood. Ice for Miss Sherwood. Sherwood. Ice for Miss Sherwood. Ice for Miss Sherwood. It's so good. It's Ice for Miss Sherwood. The panic in Miles's voice, and then just like Ice for Miss Sherwood. Ice for Miss Sherwood. Ice for Miss Sherwood. Down the hallway is hysterical. So good. To which then Murphy just goes, "Yeah, don't worry about my earpiece. When it's my turn to talk, just have Jim smack me." And then um, we are off the broadcast, and we are back in the bullpen. Corky gets off the elevator with talking to an extra and i feel so bad because i forget his name it's not marv i know i forgot it too they all have names and he has a name and we need to make a spreadsheet we really do because i keep forgetting their names Mm -hmm. and i feel bad he's he's not the guy with the uh the mullet he's a curly hair with the glasses and he has a name Mm -hmm. and i cannot remember his name so extra or office worker and she is complaining that she needs better copy uzis ak-47s just say big guns big loud guns (laughs) then uh murphy uh murphy oh my god i called her murphy because she's so murphy right now she's so murphy right now so fran office worker fran Mm -hmm. know her name who has her first line yay fran go fran says hi to corky and corky just screams at her does it look like i have time to talk (laughs) Corky dumps all of these papers and research on the meeting desk in the bullpen. She's not happy. Miles asks how the story is going. Uh, Jim is there, too, so Jim notices that something is wrong. She's uh, pretty much just been watching B-roll of overweight men in plaid shirts and Elmer Fudd hats shooting things. It sounds like Corky does not like spending her time doing that. Yeah, interesting. Miles wants to know if she wants any extra help, maybe another anchor. And then Corky has a really great moment. She does not handle stress very well, but she can handle it, that this is the lead story. And that if she has to stay in the editing room all night, she is going to do the greatest lead story you ever saw. Just you wait. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I, I commend her. You know what? She's, she, she's weighing over her head, but she's going to by golly, try and get this done and be the best at it. Yep. Uh, then Frank walks past her and sa- just says Antigua, to which Corky says, I don't speak Spanish, Frank. What do you want? Frank, of course, is again messing with Corky. Oh, um, and he uh, is just giving her a suggestion that it, for her trip that she should pick Antigua. Uh-oh. Him and his big mouth. Uh, and then Corky just sort of runs off, you know, screaming for her agent. Miles doesn't know what to do. Jim confirms that Corky seems way over her head. And Miles thinks that maybe he should ask Murphy for help, to which Jim says that that falls somewhere between very brave and unbelievably stupid. We cut into Murphy's office. Now, I I love this scene because Miles comes in, obviously, groveling, and Murphy 
does not look up for almost this entire scene. She's got her hair pulled back and that sort of Catherine Hepburn thing with the glasses mm, and yes. the sort of, is it tweed? What is that? Would that be like a tweed sort of jacket thing? I didn't look at it closely enough. I wouldn't be surprised with the texture. In the tweed family, I would yes. say. Yes. Miles asks if uh, she's still mad at him, you know, sits in, in her office chair. Um, she is, in fact, still mad at him and will be mad at him until the end of time. Mm-hmm. To which Miles thinks that's a long time and then plays with this animal wind-up to- toy. I was trying to see if it was the lobster or or some sort of animal. And it, it, this has to have not been scripted. This has to have been Grant. And he... He kind of flies it around and then crashes it down to the ground and then does a woo-woo sort of police siren with a little finger in the air. It's so (laughs) cute. Like, I can't even repeat it well. And Miles says that he can't blame her. You know, he had his back against the wall, gets up, moves towards her side, apologizes. Uh, He doesn't know if he can ever make it up to her. And he hopes that someday after all this, you know, she will understand that She needs to do the right thing and help Corky out of this jam. He asks her to think about the show. And Murphy says no. (laughs) Miles says that he just, she just has to. And and Murphy gets up right in his face and says, what are you going to do, Miles? What are you going to do? Right in his face. And for a moment, there's like a showdown. And he really sort of just stands up to her. But then um, slowly backs away. So it didn't last for long. You know, he, he, he'd he rather not frighten her with uh, what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Cut to. So we find ourselves at Murphy's townhouse. And uh, Murphy is kneeling on the ground in front of her ottoman, or between the ottoman and the, the couch. And she is singing mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson's Tracks of My Tears to her trophies as she unboxes them to the table. As this is happening, Eldon is walking through holding a pallet which we don't often see Eldon with a full-on paint palette, which I appreciate. Mm. And he pauses, looks back, and says, what's with the hood ornaments? <laughs> to which we find out, oh, this is just the B list, because she's won so many that she ran out of room. And she looks at them kind of fondly, and she goes, you know, there's a story behind each one of these, to which Eldon goes, whoa, gotta go. <laughs> uh, she stands up and says, don't worry, I won't bore you with the small details of my past victories. Do you know why? Because it's all history, Eldon. It's forgotten. All anyone's thinking about is how now that I'm a loser. And then she like turns to herself and goes, a loser. How quickly she becomes frank. Exactly. That's what I loved is like, at first it's like all caps just start shouting. And then the second she utters the word loser, she just turns and wilts into Frank that we saw at the beginning of the episode. Luckily, Eldon is saved by the ding dong. And he says, I'll get it. It's probably many handsome men wanting to be with you. (laughs) And she just glares as she turns back around. I kind of appreciate that joke. I love that joke. It's probably many handsome it's like, men. You are awful. <laughs> that is what that is a good old joke. So he opens the door and to his utter joy, it's Corky standing at the door. And the second he opens it, he goes, Oh, it's you. And he looks very sheepish and he kind of picks at his overall and says, I must look terrible. Which is quite the moment as uh, Tor- Corky, I wrote, looks like she's been just strolling through a tornado. She bursts past Eldon and goes straight into Murphy and says she needs to talk. Eldon leans over the couch and says, can I offer you any refreshments while we visit? And then in what Murphy just did, Corky whirls around and in all caps says, I need to talk to Murphy. Can you just leave us alone, Eldon? And Eldon, in the, in the, the wave of her fury, just smiles and goes, did you know that's the first time you've said my name? He turns to Murphy and says, she knows my name. And as he strolls out to the kitchen, he goes, and a thousand violins begin to play. As they settle, 
Murphy walks around and goes, gee, Corky, which is something she, something she does the rest of this conversation is, gee, gee, Corky, have you done something different with your hair? <laughs> and poor Corky starts ranting. She just spent eight hours watching film clips of senators and congressmen talking and talking and their lips keep moving and their voices were echoing and they blurred into one very big man that looked like Mr. Potato Head. And then she realized she can't breathe. She doesn't think she's actually breathing and starts to seriously have like a panic attack sitting onto the arm of the couch. Murphy doesn't really care and goes, sure you are. Well, see you tomorrow and head back toward her box of trophies. And Corky is desperate. She stands up. She says, everyone is going to tune in tomorrow to see what the Humboldt winner is doing next. And they're going to see this. And Murphy says, well, gee, Corky, unfortunately, I'm pretty busy with my own story. And at that moment, Corky loses all composure, falls to the falls to Murphy's feet, essentially sobbing on her feet, saying, please, Murphy, please, Corky. These are suede. <laughs> that is actually one of my favorite jokes of the episode. <laughs> well, no, you can't get suede wet, Corky. Please, you would know. Please, Corky. They're suede. They're suede. <laughs> and Corky just laments into the suede shoes that she wishes she had never won the award to begin with. And when I say next that Murphy pulls her onto the sofa, I mean Murphy literally heaves Corky from the ground onto the sofa next to her. <laughs> And she says, you know, don't worry, it's nothing but a hunk of glass. And Corky says, well, maybe to you, but it means something to her. She thought it meant that she was finally good. And she says she guesses that someone as successful as Murphy wouldn't understand that. And Murphy says, you know, maybe she does. Maybe she understands spending an afternoon replaying the moment when her name, when your name is called. How you put the award in a special place so it's the first thing you see in the morning and the last thing you see at night. To which I was like, yes, we all have imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter how far you've come everyone deals mm-hmm. with imposter syndrome and that is the crux of what has been bothering murphy the entire time and then she looks at Corky and says you have it in your purse don't you what i love about this moment is we get to see murphy the recovering addict step in mm, good point right this is all the stuff she starts saying is like oh betty ford you trained her well and she says the first step is admission you can't carry it around with you give me the humboldt and Corky collapses over over to the other side of the couch and goes, I can't. And Murphy stands up and starts talking to her above her, standing over the couch, says, it's a crutch. Get the monkey off your back. The work is the true reward. Now, come on. We can take this just one day at a time. And Corky does this little, like, whimper and sits up and pulls out the Humboldt. And Murphy says, I'll hold this for you until you show me you can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, mom. And she says, now go home and get cleaned up. I'll meet you at the office in half an hour. And Corky just goes, you're going to help me? I'm going to help you. And Corky gets up and starts to exit and turns back around. She says, you know, for a while there, I thought I finally made it. I finally caught up with Murphy. Boy, was I wrong. She starts to go some more and then she just turns around. And what I love is she's clearly pathetically trying to like smile and buck up, but it kind of just looks like she's burying her teeth in a grimace. And she goes, but I'm gaining on you and leaves. So Murphy turns around and settles back down to hang out with her trophies, sets the Humboldt in front of her, and then reaches into the box and pulls out an Emmy. Big, Mm. shiny Emmy that the audience goes wild for. And she sets it down next to the Humboldt and then very specifically compares the sizes. It's great. Because they're all phallic. (laughs) And we fade out to credits. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is a, a very similar structure, I feel, to Devil in the Blue Dress, don't you think? Yes, it is. It's the next level of Devil yeah. in the Dress, which I actually think ties into the but I'm gaining on you because it's the next step. Yeah, no, it's great. Exactly. It is the next mm-hmm. step. And it, she's saying, you know, I, I am you now in that speech. Well, she's not yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you're jumping the gun a little bit and it does take work and progress to, you know, build up to being, you know, like your heroes. Mm-hmm. Are you following us on social media? I know we keep saying this, but there's so much extra things and videos and sound clips that we just can't put into the show itself, but we can post it on social media. Oh, yeah. Well, and also we make it really easy for you. We're the same thing at every platform. So it's at Murphy Brown Pod, and that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's even our website. That's even our email at Gmail. Just remember, Murphy Brown Pod. Drop us a review on iTunes. It's really helpful. It helps the show get out more. And right now, we are in a recording studio that is being paid for by our Patreon. Exactly. So we literally can't do this show without you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. It actually goes right into the podcast itself. So it means a lot. Every little bit counts so that we can give you the highest quality, really make time for this podcast that we love so much, and we'd love to share it with you. Yeah, we have some great interviews coming mm-hmm. up because of it. So if you want to join the Patreon, you can get special stickers and content. It's We would love to have you. And that's all under murphybrownpod.com slash donate. And we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm-hmm.